Our sermon this afternoon is from Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled, How to Live in Post-Christian America. Good afternoon again. You know, uh, I think Sean um, was correct earlier when he said that there's uh, definitely been themes in our, our, our last few messages because uh, it seems to continue uh, on today. And I thought it was a fantastic, uh, really, part of how to live in post-Christian America, which sounds odd to say, doesn't it, uh, by what... Uh, Sean brought us today. And, and, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we will probably agree with it. Maybe not wholeheartedly, maybe begrudgingly, uh, maybe 50%. We just hold out hope that there might be a, a great revival, a great renewal. And I was talking with my brother-in-law this morning, and you know, he was talking about that. And he reminded me of the great revivals of the past, and that's true. And I have hope that I'm wrong. But it's sometimes difficult to see how we, we can be wrong about that. This idea may make us sad or even angry. We may wonder at the speed in which some of this has happened. If you think about, in your lifetime, the changes that have happened in society and the morals that Sean talked about has been so rapid, fast-paced, and it, with every passing year, it gets faster and faster. Still, some of us might hold on to that hope, as I mentioned, that there could be a little revival. There could be maybe at least a pause in this. But I don't think so. Our society has, around us is becoming less just. When, ironically, we have more rights in many ways. When you know, the rights of minorities and women have improved over the past decade, it's been coincided with injustice between people sometimes between government and its people. But the society itself is becoming less just, less caring, less patient, less logical. You know, you turn on the news and it's just not logical. Arguments are not logical. And you know, again, I'm in danger of touching on the, uh, the third rail of politics, right, in, in, in our community, but regardless of what side of the aisle you may find yourself. Really? We want to add another trillion dollars in deficit and the national debt. I don't know about that. Less logical, less peaceful, and absolutely less Christian in almost every way. In fact, Christianity is not anywhere near as known as it was just two, three decades ago. So what do we do? How should we respond? How should we live our lives now that we find ourselves in this condition, in this, in this world? After all, we're still here, aren't we? 
We're still here. God has not finished his work in us, as we talked about before. We haven't been whisked away in a chariot of fire. We're still here. He's not swooped down and carried us away to a place of safety. And Jesus said, he said, be in the world, but not of the world. And we must constantly ask ourselves that question. What does that mean to us, to be in this world, but not of this world? And how should we live in this post-Christian world? Well, at first, we might mourn. We might mourn the loss of the world that we maybe grew up in, of a safer world, a better world that once was. And I, I know that everything wasn't better in the past, but many things were. There was a better world. Ten years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, society was better in many ways. Communities were stronger. Churches, they were fuller. Churches were fuller. And it's interesting, isn't it, that with this increase in violence in our society, for whatever cause, for whatever reason, seems to be correlated with declining church attendance and declining spirituality. Interesting. So we might mourn it, just like the people of Judah mourned when they found themselves in a place called Babylon. You remember Babylon, right? They were taken from their land. God's punishment on Judah and Jerusalem was to take them away and plant them again in a land that was not their own, in a culture that was not their own amongst the people that spoke a different language. We have that famous 1978 song, I think Reg could probably sing it for us, by the rivers of Babylon, right? And that's found in Psalm 137, verse 1. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. We wept when we remembered Zion. So we might do the same. We might weep for what has been lost. We hung up our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, sing, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How just If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. There was a time when we could be proud of our country, proud of our society, proud of our capital. That's an odd thing on the ear now, isn't it? So we might mourn over what, is be, what, is, what has become around us. Mourn the loss of the country that was founded on Christian principles. Because regardless of what the revisionist historians say, it was founded on Christian principles. Absolutely was. Was it perfect? Absolutely not. It was never perfect. But better. Better than all the governments that have been tried. 
it was better. But now, instead of being invaded by Babylon, something interesting has happened. We have become Babylon. We have made ourselves into Babylon. We have, we have put ourselves into chains. And we have created a land that is strange, foreign, to the land that it used to be. We have to turn our society into Babylon. We have adopted that same corrupt worldview. You know, there's nothing new about a pluralistic society. There's nothing advanced about a pluralistic society. It's been done before. Superstitions, new age, pagans, polytheistic, materialistic, creationist, evolutionists, take your flavor. Just this mixture of confused individuals and confused society. Not new. It's not even new in the Western world. It was here in the West, or should I say in Europe, before Christianity emerged as the dominant religion. So, we have turned ourselves into Babylon. The cause may have been different, but nonetheless, we can echo the same sentiments of those in Babylon, can't we? In Psalm 137, we are living in a strange land. And so we come back to the central question. How should we live in this post-Christian country? Well, Sean mentioned it earlier uh, that you know we, we, we did a study a few weeks back on Isaiah. And there was a very small verse that gave us a little hope in the midst of all that doom and gloom. In Isaiah, there was this one verse, chapter 3 and verse 10. Remember, it said, Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doing. So I wanted to explore that a little bit more. Because I don't want to leave us down in the dumps. I don't want to leave us depressed and thinking about all the things that are absent and missing. I want us to look for the beauty and the joy that we can still have, even living in this strange land. I think it was last week, Pastor Steve, he, he read a part of Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 1. And as he went through this passage, I was really struck by God's graciousness in the middle of all of everything he had brought upon Judah and, and those from Jerusalem, and the captivity that he brought upon those people, in the middle of all that, his absolute grace and kindness came through. So in verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 29, he says, Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jechiah, the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, and the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, and the craftsmen, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. This is remarkable, isn't it? Jeremiah, he, he's the man who faithfully delivered all the warnings about what was going to happen to the people, to the nation. And he sends them a letter 
Why would he even want to do that? And these people just didn't even listen to him. It's like, it's like a reverse Jonah, right? They just didn't listen to him. But yet he was faithful and sent this letter. He was still willing to send it. In spite of the fact that they had mocked him, imprisoned him, thrown him in the sewers, he sent the letter. And I, I wonder what went through their mind. Because they were used to Jeremiah saying, you're all bad, and you're all going to die. And they're like, oh, great. It's not enough. We're just carried off. We're in captivity. We're in Babylon, and you've got to send us a letter. What else are you going to do to us, Jeremiah? Or maybe they thought, ah, a letter is going to get us out. God's, God's done with all of this. We've got our punishment, and we're going to go back home. It's just been like a really long vacation. Well, not so much. So in verse 3, it says, The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, and the son of Hilkah, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and begat sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there. I bet you either way it wasn't what they were expecting. Either way, it was not what they were expecting. God is saying, okay, you have been taken from your home. You have been taken from your homeland. Accept it. It's done. There's no going back. At least, not for you. You've been traumatized, yes. Abused. You've lost all your possessions. A lot of bad things have happened. And you are in a strange land, but you're in a land where you can do what? This doesn't sound too terribly bad for being captive, right? God is saying, build a house. Plant a garden. Raise your children. Have a family. And marry them off and, and let them have family. And keep growing and keep, keep increasing right where you are. Right in the land of your captivity. It wasn't absolute slavery. Absolute slaves do not get to build houses, do they? And plant gardens. They're given meager sustenance, just enough to keep them from dying so that they can work for their masters. Here, it seems to be a little different. We're given an opportunity to grow and continue life and enjoy life. It doesn't sound that bad. A fulfilling life with children and sons and daughters and grandchildren. A remarkable gift from God. A wonderful gift in the middle of the punishment. A kind of love that only a father can have for him. But in the middle of his, 
of the application of his justice and judgment and, and correction, he still cares for it, still cares for our future. Build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives, beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to be husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased here and not diminished. And that's important too. Not diminished, not reduced, not dissipated and, and lost among the nations. And that's interesting because there was their brethren, right? The northern tribes of Israel that had long since been lost, sifted through the nations. And it's interesting. Judah actually returns back to the same kind of condition that they were in when it all began. They were living in a strange land again. Once it was Egypt. Now it's Babylon. They were living in a strange land in a foreign town. And what happened there? They increased. All the tribes of Israel increased. God wants that same thing to continue for Judah in their captivity. Verse 7, he says, And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. You know, when I, I read that, to me, it, it tied back to what Jesus said. Matthew 5, and verse 44. He wants us to turn the other cheek, to do good to those that abuse us, to do good to those that hurt us. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Why? Why does he want us to do that? Why did he tell them to essentially do that and, and live in peace with their captors and pray for the city of their captors? Pray for that and pray for it to have peace. Why? Well, he wanted them to learn about what it is to be children of God. Children of God. We are supposed to have this kind of nature. They were supposed to have this kind of nature. But back in their homeland, before the Babylonians came, they didn't care. They ground the faces of the poor. They didn't care what happened to others. They were selfish. And they looked for their own wealth. And now we've got a reverse. He's telling them to pray for the peace and the security and the safety of their captors. We too should pray for our enemy. But then there's also something else at work in here because regardless of what community we find ourselves in, it's important for us to engender for ourselves and for others. If we set ourselves against society, right, which is easy to do, society out there has moved to Babylon and we're trying to live the kingdom of God. And it's easy for there to be a conflict. It's easy for us to attack and accuse and criticize 
and pull down. And we would be technically correct, of course. But that has consequences. Because we will sequest ourselves away. We will create ourselves a little pocket, a little Church of God town community, you know. And so many different cultures have done that, right? So many different cultures, when moved to a strange land, they create a, a small pocket of that community. You know, birds of a feather. It's understandable, but what does it do? It creates suspicion, animosity, distrust between those that are in that community and the outside, the rest. That's dangerous. That's dangerous when you don't have a lot of power, right? That's dangerous. So it's a wise move to pray for the city that took them captive, to engage in society, to be part of society. We're not talking about condoning behavior. We're not talking about condoning sin. We're talking about being wise and kind and gracious and looking for the needs of others. Who knows? We might just change some of their minds. Right? We might just bring them back to the kingdom of God instead of leaving them out there in Babylon. So God says back in Jeremiah 29 and verse 7, Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. And that's unnatural. It's difficult. But we need to be deliberate about that. So we find ourselves in Babylon. Let's pray for the peace of Babylon. Let's pray for the leaders, so that we can have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you have caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name, and I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. God's grace in the middle, in the middle of his punishment. You know, for the adults, the older generation listening to this letter being out, read out loud maybe, imagine their hearts just kind of sank. We're not going home. We're not going home. They would never again be able to go to those places that were special to them. They would never be able to, to go to the graves of their fathers, of their ancestors. They would never be able to walk down those lanes that they ran down as a boy or a girl. They would never be able to go back home. And it was very much a ceiling, wasn't it? of what God was doing. This is done. There's no going back. You are going to die in a strange land. Now, I thought about that you know, in my experience. I just, I just have to save up some money. You know, I'm far away from the land of my birth. But I just have to save up some money, 
buy some plane tickets, probably four of them, the rest of the family would be upset if I go by myself. And I can be back within 24 hours to the place that I grew up and where I used to climb trees and nearly killed myself several times. And I can be back at those special places. But how awful would it be? Even though I'm not wanting to go and do that right now, how bad it would be to be told, you know what, the UK and the US, they're mad at each other, and they've cut off all transport and communication. You can never go home. I wouldn't be prepared for that. I have no plans to go back home. But I'd like to know that I could if I want to. This is it. You will die in this strange land. You will not return home. Yet in this same letter is the promise that your, your family, your line, your heritage will not be cut off because maybe your children's children will go back home. They will be able to return and see those places. So tell them all the stories. Tell them about, well, you need to go to this area and go to that area, and this is where I fell and broke my leg. This is where I nearly strangled my brother. So, all the fun memories. Their grandchildren would find their way back home. And then God continues. He says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you future and a hope. Wow. In the middle of all of that, promising. I've got plans for you. You kind of derailed it by your sin, and I had to bring this judgment, but I have plans for you. And you know, you see that passage, don't you? You see that if you go to the Christian bookstore or whatever, you see that on posters and, you know, little desk ornaments and all kinds of things. A very popular verse. But I wonder how many Christians recognize where it really comes from and what it really means. It's the perfect memory verse, the perfect passage of encouragement for anyone who finds themselves living in Babylon. It's a beautiful passage. God has thoughts towards us that we are precious to him. He has thoughts of peace towards us, not evil. The, peop the people of Judah probably a solve to their wounds. We're not going to be lost here. We're not going to die and be destroyed here. But God is not mad at us anymore. He wants us to live in peace. That his just justice and his correction has been applied in love. And of course, lastly, to let them know that they do have a future. And in verse 12, he says, Then, you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with your, all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. This is a really critical verse. Because this turns back 
the switch. Because there was a switch turned. Because the sin of the people had gotten so bad when they were in the land that God said, I am not going to listen to you anymore. Pray to me, do whatever you want. I will not hear you. In Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 12, it says, But now go to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you. I spoke to you. I rose up early and was speaking, but you did not hear. I called to you. God called to them, and they did not hear him. He did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave you and your fathers, as I have done in Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, and I've cast you out, all of your brethren, the whole as all your brethren, the whole prosperity of Africa. They refused to hear God. They refused when He was calling to them. used to hear. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. They probably didn't even care. They didn't even hear him. And again, in Jeremiah 14, 12, when they fast, I will not hear their cry, and when they Offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So this was the final stages. This, this continued to build until finally God just refused to hear anything that the people had to say. And so when Jeremiah's letter comes, slides the switch over. Justice has been meted out. Punishment has been given. Now his anger has passed. And his grace has come. You will hear their prayer again. For I know the thoughts, he said, that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So I think this is the model. This is the example of what we just read here in, in Jeremiah 29, this is how we should live as Christians in a strange land. Living in Babylon. Because we are living in Babylon. And it's interesting, it's almost as though I can see a, a few parts of this weaving through some of the letters that Paul wrote to the church. In Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, he, he tells us to do some things that are very similar. He says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authority. For there are no, there's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. They're appointed by God. Even Congress is appointed by God. Hard to believe something. But it's according to his purpose. And we don't necessarily 
see his purpose. All these authorities exist because God permits it. If he didn't permit it, well, they wouldn't be here. So we have to accept what Paul is telling us is true. Remember what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate? He said, you would have no authority over me, right? Unless it was granted to you from on high or from above. So, we need to remember that the authorities over us are allowed and placed there by God. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Well, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. He's God's servant. He's a, he's a tool in God's hand. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices and I see some similar themes here. Paul writes it in a different way, but there's some similar themes to what Jeremiah's letter was presenting. Be part of the society. Be in this city. Be in this place of Babylon. Don't break their law. Don't rebel. If you think about it, that was an option for Judah, right? That was an option for the people that were carried away captive. They could have started a, you know, a guerrilla warfare underground instead of assassinating dignitaries and causing so much trouble, we've got to get these people out of here. We know that they're capable of doing that kind of thing because they did it to the Romans. But they could have done the same thing, but they didn't. So don't flaunt the laws. Don't rebel against the society. Don't attack the society. Because Paul really raises an interesting question. Because there's, there's things that Christians are struggling with in this country right now, aren't there? As it has to do with their moral conviction. Somebody coming into, you know, the, it's now the proverbial cake shop, shop or flower store and requiring, well, I want to make my order for, for this wedding and, and so on and it's going against the values of that Christian store owner and then they're getting sued and destroying their business and their lives maybe Paul is trying to get us to, to see that there the might be a way to navigate that maybe not every Christian has to make that decision for themselves but I imagine this is going to become more and more frequent We've got these groups deliberately trying to entrap Christians, trying to destroy the Christian community. It's a tough call. What a Christian should do in that situation it certainly should be done with prayer. But we should consider what Paul says here. He says, therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also should Sorry, everybody. Pay your taxes. If only you could have a tax-exempt line. I'm a Christian. I don't have to pay your taxes. Yes, we have to pay our taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually 
to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. I think you can sum all of that up by saying, be part of the community. Don't cut yourself off. We shouldn't cut ourselves off. We should engage and contribute into the society that we live in. Firstly, so that we don't bring the Christian faith into disrepute, right? Oh, look at those people. They're supposed to be Christians. And, you know, Matt got up there and persuaded them all to not pay taxes. Well, that wouldn't support the Christian values that we have. But then also, so that we can have peace. We want peace. We want to live in peace. And there have been communities. We can just look through the pages of history. Communities that have fallen victim because of their isolation kind of position. And they've fallen victim more easily to those that wanted to, to remove them. We want peace to raise our children, to see our children's children grow up and give them blessings of a good life. And then he says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up, not removed, but summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love. Loving those in the community. Well, Jesus said, do good to those that despitefully use you. Though they all live in Babylon, and they have a different set of principles or morals, we should not allow their Babylonian lifestyle to change ours. Give unto Caesar, right? What Jesus said, what is Caesar? Being careful to give unto God what is God. Following his commandments in love. And again, this is the idea of being in a community, being engaged and involved. And it's an absolute requirement for us to love our neighbor. If you never go outside, you don't know you have neighbors. If you never engage in the community, how can you show the love of God? How can we do that? We have obligations. We have obligations under the law. What are those obligations? Well, we just listed them. But there are more, as Paul told, in, told us in, in, in 1 Timothy. Chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, therefore, I exhort, first of all, that all supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. Not just the church. For all men. And I think he kind of meant women in there too. But for everyone. For kings and for those and for all who are in authority. That we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness. Pray for the city that you're living in. Pray for the community that you're living in. Very much like what Jeremiah said. 
For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and am speaking the truth in Christ and lying not, a teacher of the Gentiles, a nation in faith and truth. Right there, our ultimate obligation, the reason why we should be engaged in the community is though that we can do the same thing as Paul, to share the gospel, share the truth in Christ, and teach the Gentiles, teach the nation, to bring all men into the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings. But we need peace to do that. And we need to be respected in our community to do that. They don't know us. We're just a bunch of crazy religious crackpots, which we may be, but there's no reason to make it easy for them. We should be out there in the community sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with as many as will listen. So back in Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, he says, and do this knowing the time that it is now high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Is our salvation nearer than it was yesterday? And it will be nearer still tomorrow. And he, he's trying to, get us, to give us a sense of urgency. And that is certainly what the early church had. They had a sense of urgency. And of course, you know, they thought the return of Christ was intimate. Intimate, but, but still, we should try and adopt that same sense of urgency. Our salvation is near. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works, as Sean was talking about earlier, the works of darkness. Because if we're not engaging in works of righteousness, it's so easy to engage in works of darkness. It's almost like we've just got to replace one with the other. We can't just refrain from one without doing the other. We'll slip back into that darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, and not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. All the things that are easily picked up in five seconds on the internet or ten-minute drive down the road because it's Babylon. It's right there. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. There's something else in all of this that, that came to my mind when I was writing it. Judah lost, ultimately lost, the, the single most important thing that makes a nation a nation. In all their sin, in all the activity that they engaged in, that was against God, that corrupted their way. In all of that, they lost something. And it's almost as though they lost it, and then God completely took it away. They lost the ability to govern themselves. Right? God had given them a law. He had given them a structure. He had given them a way to live, 
Here's the blueprint. And they just lost the ability to follow that blueprint, to follow that. So he completely took it away and planted them in Babylon, where somebody else would rule them, where somebody else would dictate what the laws were. Somebody else, another culture, another people would tell them how to live. And they, I'm sure, didn't always like it. In very much the same way, they became like the church. The church, well, certainly the Christian church in this country, clearly is not involved in government anymore. We, if we had any real power and influence in government, surely things would be different. And that does raise another question, right? What role does the Christian church, the wider Christian church, have in the failure of this country to stay as a Christian nation? Do we have collectively a responsibility? I don't know. But as Christians living in this country, we no longer have the ability to determine our own national direction. We have to be submissive to the laws and the authorities that is over us. We are now only a religious people living in a strange land. We need to accept it. We need to embrace it. Embrace the reality. Mourn for it if we need to. And enjoy the blessings God will give us. Live peacefully in the city in which we're found. Raise our children and our children's children and build a house. Build this house. Not just our own personal houses. Build this house, right? And build up spiritual children by growing this family and this house in this Babylonian strange land. God says to us, as much as he said to Judah, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and 